You're listening to a podcast of local news from the County of Suffolk in the United Kingdom. This is brought to you by the St. Edmundsbury News Talk Association, a UK registered charity. Hello and welcome to the 1957th edition of St Edmundsbury News Talk for the 1st of December 2023. The editor of this edition is Paul Langridge. The producer is Peter Rayson and your readers are Carol and David Goodham. We should also mention our processing team who work hard behind the scenes to copy and dispatch this memory stick to you. We commence with the headlines. Bill's dismay as residents see huge rise in housing costs. Community rallies with sponsored bike ride for Jaylin 9 after leukaemia shock. Juggernaut safety fears spark new village bypass call. Number of households in temporary housing. Residents at Abera St Edmunds affordable housing complex have spoken of their cost of living woes due to price hikes, with one, one woman saying she was left with just £70 to live on every month after rent and essentials. Beaton's Lodge caters for older and retired people, with many of its residents dependent on housing benefit or universal credit. Two women living at the development, run by Haverbury Housing Partnership, told the Berry Free Press of sudden price spikes over the past few months. The residents said that these were due to changes to ineligible costs, the expenses not ordinarily covered by housing benefit. Ineligible services, which all persons living at Beaton's Lodge contribute towards as part of their monthly bills, include grounds maintenance and management fees. They also include communal energy costs, such as the heating of corridors inside the complex. The residents pay these on top of their monthly rent. One resident, who wished to remain anonymous, said of her experience, In April, the bills I had to pay went up from something like £40 a month to £220 a month. They've now sent us another breakdown, and my bill has gone up to something like £268. All in all, it's nearly £300 on my ineligible rates, which is practically the cost of my rent again. Another resident, Deborah Eagle, said the spiralling costs of service charges were leaving her with as little as £70 per month to live on. She summed up her situation. Universal Credit covers my rent. It automatically goes to Haverbury, but for service charges, I have to find the rest. That's now gone from something like £70 a month to £275 a month. The anonymous resident said she moved to Beaton's Lodge as a downsize option, hoping it would be more affordable than her previous house. She did not expect anything like the recent challenges. She said, when I moved into the property, my rent was a very low rent. All my heating was included in my rent. Electric bills were something like £20, £30 every quarter. I thought, great, lovely. So I accepted and moved into this flat. As a consequence of the recent price increases, Both residents said they felt they were under pressure to move. A spokesperson for Haverbury Housing attributed the price increases to energy price rises. They said they were offering support and advice to residents who were struggling to pay their bills. They said energy costs have dramatically risen over the past year and we understand that these increases are difficult for everyone. The service charges at our scheme reflect the actual cost of the energy provided, which was unfortunately higher than we had estimated. All residents received a detailed booklet explaining the reasons for these changes. We also visited those with identified, uh, those we identified as the most impacted to explain the situation, signposting to internal and external assistance programmes. Some residents also received Energy Bill Relief Scheme payments to help with the increase in energy costs, and we will continue to pass on any energy bill discount scheme credit payments until March 2024. 
We continue to offer support to our residents when they need it, including access to a support fund and our dedicated income and welfare and benefits teams. A community has rallied to raise over £2,000 for a nine-year-old after he was diagnosed with leukaemia. Chloe Chase of Bury St Edmunds was told her son Jalen had leukaemia in his blood and in aid of the duo, a sponsored bike ride was organised at the Flintknappers pub in Brandon on Saturday. A GoFundMe fundraiser has also been launched for the pair to help with food, bills and rent, which has received more than £2,200 so far. Chloe found out Jaylin had been diagnosed with leukaemia the day after recently moving into her new home in Bury. She said, I couldn't breathe, it's so hard to describe, but I literally lost my breath and crumbled. I held him and just sobbed my heart out. But the outpouring of love and support has just been amazing, and it's really helped us get th- and it's really helped us get through this. The landlady of the of the Flintknappers, Joe Day, has known Chloe since she was young, and decided to organise the exercise bike ride event. Unfortunately, Chloe and Jalen were unable to attend as he had to go to hospital. But Chloe's mum, Hayley Chase, and Jalen's great-nan, Heather Wymark, were able to turn up. It was obviously great fun, a massive success, and I'm so grateful to everyone that donated, said Joe. Obviously, Chloe was gutted that they couldn't come in the end, but she wanted to thank everyone, and it was lovely to see her mum and Jalen's great-nan. It was a really good atmosphere inside and everyone enjoyed the day. Professional boxer Tommy Fletcher was in attendance as Joe's husband, Charlton, has a scaffolding firm that is one of the sponsors for the Norfolk Nightmare. Both the boxer and his mum, Claire, clocked up 50 kilometres each on the exercise bike and Tommy was able to have a chat with Jalen on FaceTime as well. The raffle prizes were also popular with offers of haircuts and wine to a room for the night at the Bull in Barton Mills with a two-course meal for two. Great Barton needs a bypass. That is the resounding plea from a resident who fears heavy traffic is an accident waiting to happen. Last week, villager Keith Auchin, who lives near a traffic light-controlled pedestrian crossing on the A143 at the street, noticed the lights were being repaired after being hit by a lorry. He said, Walking along the street is like being in a war zone. Lorries are going past you at supposedly 30 miles per hour, but it often feels like more. It's like having a footpath on the side of the A14, in my mind. It's an accident waiting to happen which would be horrific. Mr Alchin said he particularly feared for the safety of children using the pavements to get to school. If a lorry can hit the traffic lights, it could hit a pedestrian, he said. I know they've been talking about a bypass for Great Barton for years, but nothing ever gets done. Mr Alchin believes a bypass could be built from Hungry Hill, the stretch of the A143 between Ixworth and the Bunbury Arms, to go behind Conyers Green and join Mill Road, the other side of Great Barton, before reaching Barton Bottom, stroke A143 Fornham Roundabout. That would take all the heavy traffic away. It would be the solution, he added. Maggie Dunn, chair of Great Barton Parish Council, said bypass plans had been dropped by highways, highways bosses years ago. However, traffic problems in the village were a problem which had been exacerbated by the A14 diversions. She said the Parish Council had funded two vehicle activated speed signs, which was funded, which was funding new white wooden gates to highlight village boundaries and a speed limit, and had repeatedly asked Suffolk County Council to clear overgrown footpaths. 
We need something to sort the traffic out, but where do you put a bypass, she said. Planners need to think about what is going on in villages along the A143 when they agree plans. When you look along the A143 to Dis and all the new houses that have gone in, all those extra cars have to go somewhere. Suffolk County Council Highways was approached for comment. The number of households in temporary accommodation in West Suffolk at the end of last month was just under 100, figures reveal. West Suffolk Council, which, like other local authorities, has a legal duty to prevent homelessness, is seeing an increase in the number of people needing housing help as residents struggle with rising costs. According to a Freedom of Information submitted by the Berry Free Press, there were 98 households in temporary accommodation in West Suffolk as of October the 29th, including 29 in bed and breakfast accommodation. Of the 98 households, 47 included children. A spokesman for West Suffolk Council said it was not seeing large increases of families with children presenting. However, overall, there was an increase in the number of placements made. Falling under temporary housing, there is emergency housing, which is for a short period and can include bed and breakfast accommodation. And According to council information, however, someone could be in a B&B, but it not be classed as emergency accommodation. And there is also longer stay temporary housing. The figures provided by West Suffolk Council also reveal that the longest time a household has been in temporary accommodation was 1,722 days, which is 4.7 years. However, the average time in temporary housing was 171 days, almost six months. The council spokesman said, The length of stay of anyone in temporary accommodation is subject to their individual circumstances and us helping them get to the point where they are able to secure and sustain a new tenancy. The longest stay of four and a half years is exceptional. The individual had a poor tenancy history. Working with him over this time helps him to demonstrate that behaviour has changed and that helps us to provide future landlords with a positive tenancy check. There were 547 temporary housing tenancies started in 2022-23, compared to 518 the previous year. Councillor Richard O'Driscoll, Cabinet Member for Housing at West Suffolk Council, said they always tried to prevent people from losing their home, but where this happened they had sufficient temporary and emergency bed and breakfast accommodation. Also, they were continuing to invest in delivering more temporary housing and improving the living standards inside. Campaigners are legally challenging development works at RAF Lakenheath that it believes are preparations for the return of US nuclear weapons to British soil. The Campaign for Nuclear Disarmament CND says the controversial plans should be subject to proper public scrutiny through the planning process and is calling for the Ministry of Defence, MOD, to halt the works at the base, home to the US Air Force's USAF's 48th Fighter Wing. There is speculation that the base could host the first US nuclear weapons in 15 years after a US Air Force's sorry, budgetary justification report said plans had been lodged to build a new 144-bedroom surety dormitory at RAF Lakenheath, which forms part of a $50 million, which is £39 million, project. The CND has sent letters to the MOD and West Suffolk Council, the local planning authority, claiming the development does not have permitted developmental rights and has called on the MOD to halt works while the necessary environmental screening is carried out. The campaign group says the work could go ahead without an environmental impact assessment if it was being carried out by or on behalf of the Crown, 
but believes this does not apply since the building works are being done by and for the USAF. In a statement to the Bury Free Press, the MOD said the planned accommodation block falls under existing permitted development rights and work is underway to support an environmental impact assessment screening. A spokesman for West Suffolk Council said they had received a letter from CND and were considering its response. The USAF was approached for comment. A father and son who run a popular beer shop and bar in Bury St Edmunds have expressed their pride in brewing a Belgian beer together that they will sell at their business. Rennie van der Noort has run Beautiful Beers in St John Street since 2011, while last year he opened Vespers Belgian Beer Bar in St Andrews Street South with his son Max. The pair have worked with a brewery in Belgium to come up with their own house beer that will be served both in bottles in the shop and on draft at the bar, with the beer to carry the Vesper name Vespers Blonde. Rennie said, I couldn't be prouder. As a family, we are passionate about beer and always have been. To have my son open the bar last year was very special for us as a family. But to now have our own beer with the Vespers logo is just perfect. It was actually a very emotional moment when Max served my wife and me the first glass of Vespers Blonde. We want to find and offer our customers the best beers from around the world and in particular showcase the amazing array of beers from Belgium and other European countries, including the UK. Now we can proudly add our, our names to that list, combining English malts and ingredients with the expertise of a Belgian brewer we know and trust. He said it was always their ambition to brew a beer that they felt was as good as some of the great Belgian blonde beers and produce something that would appeal to an array of beer lovers. We spent months picking the ingredients and working with the brewers to achieve the flavour we wanted, added René. We feel the end result is pretty special, and we hope our customers do too. Despite it being a long journey from initial idea to first pour, he admitted the testing process wasn't the hardest job in the world. The family has lived in Bury since 2001, and wanted to celebrate their close connection to the historic town. The logo features Bury St Edmunds' iconic cathedral, with the Vespers name coming from the evening prayers that would have once been heard across the town's abbey. Suffolk's Police and Crime Commissioner has said there is more to be done to help those struggling during the cost of living crisis, following a rise in the shoplifting of food. Data from the Office for National Statistics, ONS, indicates a 24% rise in shoplifting between March 2022 and 2023 across the country. This issue was among those discussed during Friday's Police Accountability and Performance Panel. Locally, Suffolk is in a good position in terms of shoplifting in comparison to other forces in the UK, with levels 6% lower than otherwise predicted. However, although the crime is often associated with alcohol and other expensive items, the meeting revealed a rise in the shoplifting of food as a result of the cost of living crisis. Suffolk's Police and Crime Commissioner Tim Passmore said there is a lot more to be done to look after those who are in great difficulty. He added, as a Suffolk native, I don't remember a time quite like this when there has been so much tightening. It's quite distressing, really. Mr Passmore stressed the importance of employment and preventative measures as absolutely crucial to making sure people do not end up in the situation where they are forced to shoplift food. He argued that ensuring employment and secure housing would help the force reduce crime. It would also create investment into the county to combat the vicious cycle. He said we have got to get our economy motoring. 
Rain did not deter crowds of people from visiting Bury St Edmunds town centre for an evening of fun as the Christmas lights were switched on. Funfair rides, performances by school children and street food were just some of the activities on offer on Thursday while dozens of stalls were present to provide festive gifts. From 3pm people gathered in the town centre to enjoy the festivities, with the lights at the Ark shopping centre being turned on at four. The rest of the lights were switched on as the sun went down, and the event was organised by Al Berries and Edmonds. The chief executive, Mark Cordell, said he was really pleased with the turnout. He added, it was a fantastic event. Plenty of families had great fun with all the events. We are very pleased with how the evening turned out and, thankfully, the bad weather only affected us for a short period of time. For us, this is the start of the run-up to Christmas. So to see lots of happy, smiling faces is a great feeling for an event with a real community focus. Children's author and illustrator James Mayhew visited West Suffolk Hospital in Bury St Edmunds to paint a fairy tale themed mural. The work is themed around local folklore. It features the green children of Woolpit as well as an artistic tribute to the town of Bury. The project was conceived after a radiographer at the hospital, Ed Kirkham, approached Mr Mayhew. The writer, known for his Katie series of children's titles, offered to donate the mural to the hospital. Mr Mayhew said of the project, I'm extraordinarily passionate about using art to help children and as someone who has received wonderful NHS care throughout my life, I wanted to give something back that will help improve the experience these children have as they undergo tests and treatment at West Suffolk Hospital. I hope it will calm children's nerves and keep them distracted during the experience, which many may find scary and distressing. The Rural Coffee Caravan, which delivers cafe services to isolated communities across Suffolk, has been recognised with a European Social Services Award at a ceremony in Croatia. In all, 44 shortlisted charities were invited to the ceremony, which took place on November the 16th. The Rural Coffee Caravan was the only British project represented on the day. The charity's CEO, Anne Osborne, said, I am so proud of everyone in the Rural Coffee Caravan family and proud to represent Suffolk and the UK. Following a visit to Kevelar, Berry's twin town in Germany, Berry Abbey Rotary Club decided to honour the link with the erection of new signs. Rotary member Melanie Lesser noticed there were many references to Berry in Kevelar, including a road named Berry St Edmunds Strass. However, upon getting home, she was disappointed to learn that Kevelar Way, a footpath in Berry, was unmarked. At her initiative, West Suffolk Council has arranged to pay for the installation of a new sign. The cost of purchasing the marker was covered by the Rotary Club and the Berry Society. On Monday, representatives from all local organisations involved in the initiative converged on Kevlar Way to put up the sign. And this is a short piece entitled 50 Years Ago, Mr Super Suffolk. Super Walter, the husband who knows his wife would never go to the pub with him, but asked her anyway, was chosen as Suffolk Husband of the Year in 1973. The competition, held at Everard's Hotel in Berry St Edmunds, was organised by the Free Press in cooperation with BBC Radio 2 to find the National Husband of the Year. Although the judges agreed all the finalists were super-husbands, they had the hard task of picking one to send to a national heat. Their choice was Mr Walter Ward, 53, of Beck Row, who worked as a test engineer for the Ford Motor Company at Herringswell. Walter and his wife Mary 
had been married nearly 32 years. And now we have some letters. The first is from Graham Day of Stowmarket. Driving through Elmswell near Stowmarket recently, I noticed that a road on a new development on the Wetherden Road had been given the name Procession Way. I assumed it was not because of the long line of prospective purchases proceeding up the road to the development sales office. Over the years, street names have been used to commemorate famous people or events. For example, in Ipswich, Clarkson Street, after Thomas Clarkson, the slavery abolitionist, Waterloo Road, after the battle, and more recently, Bruff Road, after the railway engineer, Peter Bruff, who built the Bury St Edmunds Railway. I carried out some internet research and found out that Procession Way had probably existed since medieval times and was the demarcation line between Elmswell and the adjoining village of Wetherden. What kind of processions used Procession Way? Was it used for beating the parish bounds or some other purpose? In addition, when driving back into Ipswich through Whitnesham, on the left-hand side of the road, is Struggler's Lane. I know that throughout our lives most people at some stage have been in that situation, but was it a corruption of a previous name or for some other reason? Are there any eminent Elmswellian or Whitnashamian local historians who could help? And this letter is from Tom Murray of Bury St Edmunds. It's headed, Let's have a building to be proud of. I see in last week's Bury Free Press that the former Cornhill Walk shopping centre is on the planning agenda again. It's the ugliest building in Bury, if not in Suffolk. It needs demolition. What goes in its place is of the highest importance to residents, visitors and the developers. If those who object could give an idea of what they think should replace it, it could help the developers. Do we need something akin to the post office redevelopment or in the style of the Looms Lane apartments? Perhaps the developers should look at Bury now. A penthouse on sale for £1.6 million, two bedroom flats, a few pounds short of 400000 It's not going to be social rent units or even affordable homes. It could be higher quality homes, larger units, fewer units, perhaps a couple of penthouses, thinking of elderly, um, a downsizing into three bedrooms, even four bedroom units. But fewer units at a higher cost, the market seems to cope with these prices. Then there will be less need for extra parking. As for the two proposed shops, the big problem is high rents and rates. It makes small units, such as those at the old post office, come in at around £100,000 each. Top shop, long closed, is still on the market, even though it has planning permission to be cut into two units. With the current number of units proposed for Cornhill, it will fail again. Perhaps it's time for a major rethink by the developers. But let's have a building to be proud of. Get rid of the biggest eyesore in our town. And this next letter is from Helen England. She is a member of More Than a Provider, made up of six of the UK's largest not-for-profit social care providers. The Chancellor could have used the autumn statement to signal bold ambition for our public services and the social care workforce. People drawing on social care want a life of purpose where they contribute to their community. Instead of benefit sanctions, the autumn statement should have been an opportunity to strengthen models of support and champion the work by not-for-profit providers to increase employment opportunities and reduce reliance on acute hospital settings. And it could have delivered a long overdue social care workforce plan that creates pay parity with the NHS. Sadly, it seems that sticking plasters remain the order of the day. And this uh, letter is headed, Perhaps robots could do a better job. It is 2023, in a supposedly better world than ever before, with all the innovations in technology, etc., who would have thought? 
In this country, we have politicians who, when asked a particular question, are only able to answer one that wasn't asked, plus interesting revelations from the COVID inquiry. We have a police force that should be our safety blanket that is littered with unscrupulous characters. We have entertainers who we looked up to that have been discredited. More widely, we have leaders of of nations that are not concerned that their armed forces are killing innocent women and children. We also have the prospect of one of the world's leading powers being controlled by a person in prison. We have the world warming up and loads of unnatural weather events happening all around us. There is the prospect of humans being dictated to by robots. But think on, perhaps that's not as bad as it sounds, because humans aren't doing a great job at presently. And now we have a feature. It's an opinion by Martin Seeley, who is the Bishop of the Diocese of Edmundsbury and Ipswich. It's entitled, Compassion Doesn't Take Sides. The first Christmas card has arrived. Lights are beginning to appear on houses and shops. The Christmas adverts are on the television. And there is no shortage of tempting merchandise in the supermarkets. We are approaching the season when we once again renew our hope for peace and goodwill. And yet, how do we declare that hope when war is raging in so many parts of our world, and not least in the land of the one whose birth we are going to celebrate, the one called the Prince of Peace. The images on our screens and the horrific stories coming out of Israel and Gaza bring home humanity's incredible capacity for savagery, violence and destruction. The savage and barbaric attack by Hamas terrorists on October the 7th left the bodies of mutilated babies, children and adults in its terrifying wake. I had the searing privilege this week of meeting with family members who lost loved ones in the attack and whose relatives are hostages. We can hardly imagine the anguish they are living with, let alone the conditions their loved ones in captivity are experiencing. And now we see the unrelenting response on Gaza by the Israeli military forces. The destruction of the city, the flight of thousands to the south with no route out, the desperate shortage of aid supplies, the real prospect of starvation and the mounting death toll is hard to take in. This is all in a piece of land about 25 miles long and between three and a half and seven and a half miles wide, with a population of more than two million. Imagine Suffolk east of the A12 from Felixstowe to Saxmundham, and with a population of two million people, not 130,000. So what can we do to be able to give voice to the hope this Christmas for peace and goodwill? The fundamental question is this. What kind of society can be envisaged both for a secure Israeli state and a secure neighbouring Palestinian state? That path is not clear, but it must be imagined. And that imagining must start again now. Justin Welby, the Archbishop of Canterbury, spoke these words over six weeks ago, right after the Hamas terrorist attack and the destruction of the Al-Ali hospital in Gaza by a missile, the origin of which still remains unclear. It's incredibly difficult for those of us outside the immediate violence and suffering to know how to think about a peaceful future for the Holy Land, and it must be virtually impossible right now for those in the midst of the conflict. Yuval Noah Harari Professor of History at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem, wrote recently, Most Israelis are psychologically incapable at this moment of empathising with the Palestinians. The mind is filled to the brim with our own pain, and no space is left to even acknowledge the pain of others. And you can imagine most Palestinians are psychologically incapable of empathising with the Israelis. 
Harari goes on, through, though, with a plea by, to those of us outside the immediate situation. He says, But outsiders who are not themselves immersed in pain should make an effort to empathise with all suffering humans, rather than lazily seeing only part of the terrible reality. It is the job of outsiders to help maintain a space for peace. We deposit this peaceful space with you, because we cannot hold it right now. Take good care of it for us, so that one day, when the pain begins to heal, both Israelis and Palestinians might inhabit that space. So what could that mean to maintain the space for peace? Part of the answer is to imagine a better future, to hold on to hope, as Justin Welby has bidden us to do, to hope, yet for a peaceful settlement. We hold the space for peace, hold on to hope, and imagine a better future by starting with care and compassion for all, for all those in desperate need, regardless of whether they're Israeli or Palestinian. The first thing we have to do is to act on the fundamental belief that every human being is precious. Acts of terror and savagery are acts against people's shared humanity, including the humanity of those who perpetrate such acts. So we actively show care and compassion, first in our prayers for the people suffering in this conflict, as in any conflict. Compassion doesn't take sides. And we can give, and maybe ask others to give at Christmas in lieu of a gift to ourselves, to charities aiding the victims of this conflict. And we urge our government to act justly and swiftly to press for the release of the hostages, for channels to be opened, for aid to reach all victims, for a cessation of the conflict. And we can believe that peace is possible and support those who work for peace. In these ways we renew our intention and our hope for peace and goodwill as we celebrate the birth of the one who became human to help to become human. And this uh, is an opinion, and this has been written by Mark Murphy. My social media feed for days, and in some cases for weeks, has been full of people either putting up their Christmas decorations and others moaning about people putting up their Christmas decorations. I know some folks don't trim up until just before Christmas and take them down soon after, but for others it can't come soon enough. In Murphy Dolphin Towers, we normally hang back a bit, but this year we've gone for it big time already. A couple of Sundays ago, it was a nice day, and I thought, I'm going to put the lights up outside. Amazingly, they worked, even though they were tied up in knots from when I put them away last Christmas. When will I learn to put things away neatly? Will you remind me of this in early January when I take them down again? Mark, put them away neatly. I wasn't going to switch them on properly, but I couldn't resist. As the dark descended, on they went. We sat with the curtains open, watching them twinkle, and then suddenly the WhatsApp group for our road burst into life with comments about the arrival of Christmas at our house. Thankfully, it hasn't descended into some Hollywood movie where each house tries to outdo the other, but there's still time. Of course, once you start, you can't stop. So, up the loft I went to get the rest. Thankfully, Leslie oversees packing these away, and let's just say they weren't just chucked up there like my outdoor lights were in the shed. I always find it an emotional time when we trim up, as each, each decoration has some sort of poignant memory. We're not ones for designer decorations. I know each year there's some sort of trend that you end up seeing the influencers post on Instagram or TikTok. No, not for us. It's the old faithfuls every year, and it always will be. When we carefully unwrap the baubles from their protective layer of old newspaper, 
and place them on the tree, it stirs memories. Some baubles are reminders of holidays, others are gifts from friends, and others family decorations passed down through the generations. It's a right hodgepodge, but that's what we like. We trim up the mantelpiece and pop a bit of tinsel here and there, but sadly, in my opinion anyway, we don't hang anything from the ceiling or put balloons in the corners of the room. Does anybody still do this? When I was young, we did this all the time. Homemade paper chains and every morning they'd be on the floor as the glue had come unstuck. So maybe it's best consigned to the history books. Anyway, we're all set and ready to go. Is it too early? You may say yes. But I think with all that's going on in the world, the dark evenings and the cold heading this way, we need some light in our lives. In Scandinavia, they do this through the winter months and call it haig. It is described in Wikipedia as a word that describes a cosy, contented mode evoked by comfort and conviviality. That sounds pretty good to me. So, let's not moan about lights going up too early. Let's find our inner Viking and get some haig in our lives. I've got to go now, because I've got to get that other important part of Christmas going. Getting the sprouts on. I don't want them hard on Christmas Day. <clears throat> and here's another opinion by another one of our journalists. Earlier this week, I caught a clip of the new series of I'm a Celebrity. I'm not a viewer, but I've seen enough of the shows to know that it's a very strange cons construct. A bunch of people, many you've never heard of, will spend three weeks together in the Australian jungle eating the freshly cooked naughty parts of exotic animals. Yep, TV viewing this past 30 years has come a long way from Opportunity knocks. I don't know how much I'm a Celeb costs per series. However... Since it's filmed in Australia, I assume that with lots of long-haul flights, equipment hire, hotel rooms, medical insurance, life insurance, legal insurance and more, it's not cheap. The show's production team, along with various showbiz agents, will already have busied themselves signing up, alleged, celebrities, to engage in highly demeaning and strange ordeals. The whole business is decadent and disgusting. It's decadent because at a time when we are marinated daily in news bulletins showing so much human suffering, here are people being paid and publicised to undergo controlled episodes of mild discomfiture for public entertainment. It's super inappropriate. What it really depends upon, though, is, as the programme's name suggests, is celebrity, a word which badly needs redefining. Who, therefore, are our celebrities this year? Upon going online to find out, I was surprised to discover that apart from Nigel Farage, I genuinely didn't know who anybody was or what they'd done to become celebs. It was like studying the form for a horse race, only to discover that most of the runners were zebras, wildebeests or acarpies. If celebrity and fame were once related, then, in recent decades, I believe that they've become different things. Fame is an attribute which usually accrues around talent, special abilities, great achievements or noble deeds. Fame is also as likely to come to a scientist, sports star or business person as it might to an artist, pop singer or actor. You become famous by being good at something, by working hard and being admired for your actions or creations. Celebrity, on the other hand, means that even if you're, you're, you're some gobby waste of rations who runs the nail bar in the other way is Elmstead, you can still be televised. Because many people because many people adore seeing others like themselves saying dull and sometimes really stupid things. How stupid? The following gem came from a reality show based in my own fair county of Essex. The scene was a Halloween party. Person 1. Do you know what the true meaning of Halloween is? Person 2. Was it like uh, when Guy Fawkes died on the cross? Fame, when it's been earned, has a certain value. 
claim can get you work. If you're freelancing in the type of job for which there exist no official qualifications, fame will be your CV. Paul McCartney, for instance, cannot read or write music, but if you were advertising for a composer to score your film, if Paul applied for the job, would you turn him down because he couldn't produce a CV? Genuine fame is golden. Celebrity, by comparison, is cryptocurrency and similarly in need of regulation. Not that fame is always ideal. When you have a fame, people will climb over your friends in order to speak to you. Then they'll spark up a long conversation with you while not even acknowledging that your partner is standing right beside you. Worse, fame can be this grinning mask which becomes welded to you. It's always there, misrepresenting you. Even if your child is seriously ill, you've just split up from your spouse or a beloved friend has died. When you just want to be quiet and lick your wounds, you're still forced to be famous. Really famous people routinely have to cope with exactly such situations. Fame sometimes comes mercifully slowly, from the smallest sips to the larger gulps. That way, a certain amount of immunity may build up. Celebrity, however, can be like cheap scotch. Some people should never go near it, because it turns them into idiots. Many of the newer celebrities, especially those who are famous for merely being on TV, are headed for nowhere but therapy. Yet, when the celebrity factory requires more fodder, there'll be no shortage of new victims to hurl themselves into the mincing machine. Sure, they'll give out a big cash reward in exchange for your privacy and sanity. If there really is no such thing as a free lunch, I'm a celeb, may the one exception but it's a lunch you really won't want to eat. Its celebrity is dodgy, old tincture, but for an audience with an ever-diminishing attention span, it's become the must-have makeover of our times. For who, in our modern world, can bear to stand there any longer gazing out at the eternal darkness of anonymity? That said, don't let anyone ever con you into paying extra for your entrance to the VIP enclosure. Nobody famous ever goes in there. And uh, this piece uh, has been written by um, local historian Martin Taylor. Where Have All the Flowers Gone is a protest song written by Pete Seeger and popularised by Peter, Paul and Mary and Joe Baez. But in Berry St Edmunds you could read pubs instead of flowers. In the past, the town had a large number of pubs associated with several breweries. Now, only Green King, the largest independent brewery in the country, remains. It has seen the, number, it has seen the town's number of public houses uh, uh, decimated. According to White's Directory of 1874, there were 65 public houses in the town. However, some of these were beer houses. Following the passing of the Beer House Act of 1830, for the princely sum of two guineas, you could brew or just sell beer from your front room or parlour, but not spirits. This was to combat the reliance of the lower classes on Mother's Ruin, gin. Around 1960, <coughs> there were 62 hostelries in Berry. <coughs> Now it's down to 25, if taken into account bars. <clears throat> At one time, a metaphorical pub crawl, for instance, could take in six pubs in Southgate Street, all now gone. Starting near St Mary's Square was King of Prussia, the Three Crowns, then the Topper Arms, Ye Old White Hart, the Plough, and finally the sword in hand, which was the last to close. So why was there a number of pubs in the one street? Perhaps it was just the convenience of being able to use Shanks's pony. Any pub within walking distance would become your local. But as time progressed, the motor car would be able to take you further afield. The advent of the Road Safety Act of 1967 which introduced legal limits for alcohol consumption while driving, 
established penalties for those, quite rightly, caught driving under the influence of alcohol. This may have been a major contributor to why some pubs went by the wayside. Another consideration was the economics of keeping a pub open. In 1969, ten shillings, 50p, would buy you three pints of bitter and still leave change to buy you a portion of fish and chips from Flittons. Controversially, did the change over two years later to, to, to a decimalisation, when the buying power of the pound psychologically shrank from 240 pennies to 100 pence, contribute to the downfall of many a pub? However, you were still going to get a working man's thinking of his right to a pint at the end of his day's toil, but soon increased costs curtailed that. Another sad decline in pubs is the loss of community involvement. In so many cases, cribbage, darts and football leagues have suffered. Participants either losing interest through plain apathy or a willing landlord to provide space and time. More likely is that there are far more choices in life these days. So is this what happened in the town? So let us look at some of those that have come and gone. <clears throat> Through no fault of their own, because of Parkway, the checkers in Risbygate Street and the cricketers in King's Road were demolished. The Prize Inn, also gone. The site it sat on providing far more valuable properties than a single pub. The Glad Abbot on Abbotsbury, Abbotsbury Road has closed, still empty with no reason why. The Merry-Go-Round on the Howard Estate should still be with us, as should the Minden Rose in Newmarket Road. But lack of investment for them meant their closure. Sadly, the former, when closed, became the victim of an arson attack. A downturn in financial markets has seen the rising sun in Risbygate Street, Elephant and Castle in Hospital Road, the Castle Hotel on Cornhill, and the Queen's Head in Churchgate Street morph into other commercial enterprises, while the Three Goats in Guildhall Street, Blackbirds in Bridewell Lane, the Falcon in Risbygate Street, the Unicorn in Eastgate Street and the Golden Fleece in Churchgate Street have all been given over to residential, as so many others have. The latter was one of the last pubs in Bury to brew its own beer. This was way before microbreweries came about. Fortuitously, the St Edmund's Head in Cannon Street still survives, having taken up brewing in recent years. Two traditional pubs still with us are the Rose and Crown in Westgate Street and the Dove in Hospital Road. The list of lost pubs is almost endless, but just a few more deserve a mention. <coughs> the Anchor, opposite Looms Lane, was partially destroyed in a World War I Zeppelin attack, and the Three Horseshoes in Out Northgate was pulled down for the link road to the A14. The White Lion in Brent Govel Street suffered the same fate for the ill-fated Cornhill Walk. At the time of writing, the Greyhound in Eastgate Street has an application to be turned into two properties. Its long-standing landlord, Peter Baldwin, with his many wonderful photos of Berry adorning its walls, would turn in his grave on knowing this. These are just a few of the many drinking establishments that have contributed to the rich heritage and history of our town. I'm sure many readers have fond memories of those no longer with us. We ought to be grateful with those still with us. The old adage still applies. Use them or lose them. An artisan ice cream made by a Suffolk farm shop and small holding enterprise is now available nationwide thanks to major contract. Older Tree ice cream is made by Older Car Farm 
which is based at Creating St Mary Needham Market. After scooping a new national contract with Frozen Ready Meals, Maker Cook, which has shops across the country, the business has doubled in size. Founder Stephanie Hardingham said the contract came off the back of a Golden Fork for East Anglia, award from the Guild of Fine Foods in 2022. The ice cream has won multiple awards and its black currant flavour was recently crowned Grand Champion at the British, Great British Food Awards, the award's highest honour. Stephanie, who now runs the farm shop and cafe at Older Car Farm, as well as the ice cream operation, is thrilled. We've had a very exciting year for Older Tree and a couple of exciting announcements recently, she said. This year, our blackcurrant ice cream was also crowned Grand Champion in the Great British Food Awards and we received gold for our classic sausages, so we now also have an award-winning butchery, she said. The farm shop has also received an accolade after it was shortlisted as one of the best in the country by the Farm Retail Awards. It will now vie with two other finalists in the small farm shop category with turnovers under £1.5 million at an awards event sponsored by Cook. The event will take place on March the 5th in Peterborough. We are the only business from the east of England to be shortlisted this year, said Stephanie. Judges described it as a business nestled in the heart of the Suffolk countryside. Older car farm shop champions local seasonal and artisan produce, including its own butchery and deli counter, and award-winning ice cream, they said. Farm Retail Association chairwoman Emma Mosey said, Farm shops and farmers' markets continue to be the nation's retail beacons for sourcing fresh and nutritious produce with low food miles from passionate and knowledgeable, often family-run, independent businesses. It is right that we celebrate the crucial role that these invaluable food and drink retailers play at the heart of the communities they serve. Running throughout our finalists are inspiring stories of innovation consistent quality produce and customer service excellence. Terrific achievements and qualities that have been demonstrated during a challenging period for retailers amid the ongoing cost of living crisis. Congratulations to everyone who is shortlisted and good luck. This is your time to shine and we're looking forward to celebrating your achievements in March at our grand awards ceremony. At the Great British Food Awards, Judge Paul Askew praised the delicious flavour of Older Tree Blackcurrant Cream. Older Car Farm's classic sausages were awarded a gold badge at this year's Great British Food Awards. They're made by hand, use, by hand using local free-range Blytheborough pork. Chef Judge Paul Agnew described them as balanced and Moorish. We are coming to the end of this edition of St Edmundsbury News Talk. If you have any comments about the memory stick or difficulty playing it, please use the phone number on the pink sheet which you've been given. Alternatively, you can put a note in the pouch when you return the memory stick to us. We would like to acknowledge our appreciation to the Berry Free Press, East Anglian Daily Times, Haverhill Echo and Newmarket Journal, from whose pages most of our items have been taken. News Talk will be back again next week, so until then, from Peter, Paul, Carol and David, it's goodbye. Goodbye. been listening to a podcast brought to you by the St Edmundsbury News Talk Association. You can view more information about News Talk on our website at www.stedmundsburynewstalk.org.uk. The music in this podcast was provided under Creative Commons license by Scott Holmes. This podcast was created entirely by volunteers in our Bury St Edmunds studio.